Hi, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of the Law Down, CM Murray's podcast, where we talk about the law behind news stories. Um, my name is Beth Hale. I'm a partner in the team at CM Murray, and I'm here with Emma Bartlett, another partner in the team. Um, we've got a few stories to cover today. Emma is going to talk about a recent case involving transgender rights, as well as um, a race discrimination case involving someone being asked to cut off their dreadlocks. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, a Citibank employee who was dismissed for making a false expenses claim. And I'm going to talk about Cardiff University dress code issue. Um, so Emma, can I hand over to you first? Hi there. Um, to introduce your topics, please. Yeah, of course. Thank you. Um, so the first case that I spotted, um, it was in October, actually, it was about a transgender woman who had brought a tribunal claim against her local authority, um, which is where she worked, the Royal Kingston-upon-Thames Council, as she had um, successfully won £25,000 because they had failed to properly acknowledge and comply with their duties in relation to her transitioning from a a man to a woman. And um, I I just thought it was really interesting because it's a a really good lessons learned for employers here in handling gender transition at work. The facts of the case um, are relevant in so much as um, it talks about what the employer didn't do um, and what the employee was asking them to do. Um, She had been working at the council for some time um, in the transport department and she'd given them eight months notice of the fact that she was transitioning. And the reason why she did that was because obviously she wanted some support through the process, um, but also post-transition, she wanted her name to be changed to the, uh, the new female name that she had adopted. And this was principally the reason why the tribunal found against the council in that um, it had failed in its duty of care to implement its equal opportunity policies. And actually, the HR department received a, a bit of a dressing down from the tribunal because it was unable to explain why it hadn't updated its policies for a long period of time. In fact, its equal opportunity policies referred to um, pre-Equality Act 2010 acts. So the definition of um, harassment or sexual harassment was under the Sex Discrimination Act 1975, et cetera. Or was it 76? 75. Thank you. So yeah, the, the council had failed to update her name and this practice is called dead naming and what it what it also did was misgender her um, in the persistent use mainly through people not um, knowing that they had to do something or do it within any particular time frame so continuing to use her pre-transition male name and this was in relation to for example she had a, a note on her locker that had her male name on it. And then post-transition, they crossed through the male name and put a post-it note with her female name on it, which um, uh, was obviously offensive to her and let everybody know what was going on. You know, the fact of a transition can be a very um, private and personal matter. So that was upsetting, um, but also um, a little insensitive. Her access to the building, so her swipe card was still in her male name. There was no update, so they'd continue to use dead name her uh, on her pension uh, records. So for two years, her pre-transition name persisted. And um, 
yeah, it was it, it was it's just a really salutary lesson that if an employer is notified that an employee is going through um, gender transition and is looking for support, then the employer really needs to scrabble around and review its policies to make sure that the employee can be provided with the right support through that process and not embarrassed, um, which is ultimately what happened here and was deemed by the tribunal to be harassment because they uh, continued to dead name and misgender her and uh, embarrassingly hadn't updated its policies. So I thought that was really good. And it was it's a really, um, when you read about it in the papers or read about it in the papers at the time, it's one of those cases that was actually quite easy to understand. Um, a lot of the transgender cases um, can really lead to furrowed brows when you're reading through them. But this one was quite straightforward. So I thought it was really interesting to mention. Yeah, and I think it's a, I think it's a really difficult issue for employers, isn't it? The transgender issue. I think it's very, it's obviously very, can be very, can debate can get quite heated on various issues. But I think that there are some quite simple things, which is that you should be treating your employees with respect and giving everybody respect in the workplace, whatever you know, whatever you might think about the law or whatever, you know, anything like that. I think it's that 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 sort of basic respect is so important, and I think that's one of the things this case shows. Yeah, and interesting that the lack of respect then translates into harassment. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I think people are. This is one of those issues where people think this is difficult. So in fact, I'm going to sort of shy away from it and not deal with it. But that actually, in and of itself, can be discriminatory. So I think it's just sort of really thinking through what your policies are, how you implement them, how you communicate them, how you manage differences within your workforce, and allow all employees to have that that sort of level of respect. Yeah. It's the, it's the sort of um, claim before an employment tribunal that makes employers realise that they do have this duty of care towards their employees in, in this respect. And actually, there was a, a Jaguar Land Rover case where there were some recommendations ordered by consent in relation to Jaguar to appoint, for example, a diversity and inclusion champion. And I do appreciate that we're talking about large employers here. Mm. So these recommendations are appropriate where the tribunal perceives the employer to have a you know a decent size and administrative resources to do this but that you know they would be scaled down still for a smaller employer but in in that case that they were ordered to appoint by consent a diversity and inclusion champion uh, and jaguar jaguar's board was commissioned to do a report but there were some uh, specific training recommendations good practice training um, which can be dealt with through e-learning as well as through general awareness training mm. on these issues that were widely discussed at the tribunal in both of these cases. So, And how data is stored uh, electronically as well as obviously paper and on post-it notes is important for employers to keep up to date to deal with gender changes as well. Yeah, absolutely. So interesting. Mm. I think there will be more cases like this coming through the tribunals in sort of coming months and years because it's really um, I think it's a, an issue which is so difficult that employers will often get it wrong, actually. Um, but but as I say, there are some basic points that it is not that difficult to get right. Yeah. Thanks, Emma. So I was going to talk about this Citibank employee which got who, who was dismissed for um, he claimed expenses for sandwiches and coffee for his partner. And it's become known as sandwiches and coffee for him and his partner on a business trip. Um, it's become known as the sort of two sandwich lunch claim case that, you know, it was he the sort of headline is that he was sacked for 
or claiming for two sandwiches when he should only have claimed for one. I think it's a bit, that's a bit of a misleading kind of summary of the story. Um, but essentially what happened is he was on a business trip. He claimed, after the business trip, claimed expenses for two sandwiches and two cups of coffee during a lunchtime. And um, one of those sandwiches and one of those cups of coffee had been consumed by his partner, not by him. Um, and then he was subsequently dismissed for gross misconduct. Now, the key point that I've missed out in that telling in which a lot of the kind of headline press coverage missed out is that he then said to his employer, no, 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 I ate both sandwiches and I drank both coffees. And that was really where the problem lay, was that he was dishonest. He had lied to his employer about what had happened. So... I think it's probably wrong to say he was dismissed for buying two sandwiches or claiming two sandwiches on expenses. But in fact, he was he was dismissed because of that dishonesty. And I think it's a really good example of that. The cover up is always worse than the crime. I think if he had gone to them and said, sorry, I claimed this by mistake. I really apologise. I can only I should only have claimed for one sandwich and one coffee. I think, you know, his job probably would have been safe. But he lost his unfair dismissal claim um because the tribunal found that actually Citibank were within their rights to dismiss him for that dishonesty not for the eating two sandwiches which you know if you're hungry is fine um <laughs> so I just thought it was quite an interesting one and there, there are lots of examples of this aren't there where that sort of cover-up being worse than the crime is just that you know people misleading their employers or making a mistake doing something wrong and then um and then trying to cover that up or lying about it is actually what gets them in, in trouble. And it's something that, you know, in regulated professions, for example, so it, for the, the FCA and the SRA will both look at, you know, everyone understands that people make mistakes. People sometimes do things that they shouldn't do or, or, or you know, whether whether deliberately or otherwise. But the, the key thing is that you fess up to that immediately and um, and try and fix it rather than trying to cover it up and, and which will inevitably makes things worse. Yeah, absolutely. In a regulatory environment, even more so, the, the need for honesty is paramount. It, it goes, it, you know, it's core to um, what the individual does in that environment. But it's it's such a, you know, a member of the public reasonably looking at this, um, splashed the headlines, splashed on the newspapers, might say, he was dismissed because he claimed for an extra coffee and an extra sandwich. That yeah, it's was, a really know, small is, amount of money. Yeah, it's a small amount of money, but it's the fact that um, it's the web of um, untruths that came out about this. Yeah. No, no, I saved the sandwich and um, for later in the afternoon because I'd skipped breakfast and yeah. trying to justify it and then ultimately saying, yeah, OK, my uh, my partner had met me on the trip and um, it was their lunch and I'll pay it back. So even though you'd offered to pay it back, it was like, yeah, but you, you've already. But, and that's the, that's the core bit. And it's that uh, relationship of trust that, exists between employer and employee in in any employment relationship not just in re in the regulated industries but you know what the judge said was even if the expense claim had been filed under a misunderstanding there was an obligation upon the claimant to own up and rectify the position at the first opportunity i accept that the respondent to that Citibank requires a commitment to honesty from its employees and i think that that would be true in for all employers yeah. they, it is totally reasonable for them to expect honesty um, and that, that that kind of cover up misleading them is is really likely to be problematic from an employment relationship perspective. And I think even it's not to do, as I say, with the amounts of money involved or the sort of size of the sandwich. It's to do with the, the honesty issue. Yeah, always. Uh, and then, Emma, you were going to talk about the football. Yeah. Story. So this is um, a really sad article to read, but a really important article 
that I read um, because it highlights an issue that pervades a lot of the employment cases that we see relating to race discrimination. Um, and it relates to racial stereotyping. So I was reading an article uh, in the sports section um, written by BBC journalist, sports journalist, Daniel Ogunshaken, who uh, was writing about Gifton Noel Williams, um, who aspires uh, a footballer, um, played for Premier League teams and is aspiring to be a Premier League manager. And Daniel starts the article by talking about his journey as a, a sports journalist working in the media world, where uh, in 2013, he says while he was working, um, he had he has had dreadlocks and was proud of his hair, quite rightly, um, considered it part of his identity, but was told that actually you should probably cut your dread dreadlocks if you want to further your career, which at that time he just refused to do. He said it does not impact my ability to do my job, but it's just the, the look that is re required on certain from certain sports journalists who are presenting. Um, he was being told that your look isn't quite right. Uh, and uh, he said he got to 2015 opportunity to cover the Rugby World Cup, a specialist part of his interest in sport and hoped to be one of the lead reporters at the time, but wasn't given the opportunity um, expressly because his look wasn't considered appropriate at what was referred to as a blue ribbon event and that he needed to lose his dreadlocks. So obviously um, you can see that this, this gives rise to racial stereotyping. The fact that we're saying people with, with dreadlocks who are more likely to be black, and it may be for religious reasons as well, that they have uh, dreadlocks um, are being told that that look doesn't fit. Anyway, he said he was devastated and he found it a deeply racist experience, um, which you can see. And uh, in the event, he ended up cutting off his dreadlocks and said he felt awful as a result of having to do it. And um, this is the article then goes on to talk about Gifton Noel Williams, who, as I said, was a was a Premier League footballer, striker, and um, is seeking to go into football management. Um, he is very proud of his dreadlocks and he equally has been uh, told by people close to him that they've suggested that he might want to cut off his dreadlocks to improve his um, job chances. And it's it, reading this sort of article, you then look at, as we do as um, um, generally as uh, employment lawyers who are interested in diversity, you look at, um, right, who are taking the decisions within the field, the sector, whether that's the board of a company um, or the leaders in a business, you look at the Premier League managers and uh, where where are the black managers within them? So he could be, you know, the first top flight Premier League manager. And um, it's it's sad to hear that people are suggesting that losing part of his identity, which is integral to his race, could assist him in doing that. So it's it's just I, I wanted to talk about it because I, I felt that we see this type of um, racial stereotyping. Um, not necessarily racial stereotyping. We see people being told that they can't make the next stage in their career, or they might not they might not get a job because they don't seem to fit within an organisation. And it's the word fit, and your look isn't quite right. That in certain circumstances, such as and this is a, a classic example that um, I'm talking about now, but a classic example where um, using that sort of terminology to uh, as a barrier to people moving forwards is potentially discriminatory. Um, and I just thought it was a really interesting one to talk about. And uh, hopefully we will see 
um, Gifton Noel Williams succeed in his ambition um, without, and he, he's very adamant that he's not going to cut his dreadlocks. So um, there, was, there was a report also commissioned by the Black Footballers Associate a Partnership in March, which looked at the disappointing percentage of manager-related roles in England that are held by Black Black employees generally. So it seems that there's some work to be done as it's not unusual for many organisations and sectors within the UK. Interesting as well, he said, my hair is staying and so is my gold tooth, despite the negative stereotypes. So... <laughs> it's so interesting isn't it and so sort of interesting this is still happening um and still yeah. there was actually there was a um in september this year there was a study published in hr magazine which said that over one in ten business decision makers think several afrocentric hairstyles are inappropriate for the workplace so that was in connection with a thing called world afro hair day which is sort of to raise awareness and to reduce this kind of discrimination but it's really just emphasises, doesn't it, how how much this discrimination still goes on. And uh, I think the EHRC published guidance last year on um, schools and schools having hair policies, because I think that has been a really big issue that children are told that they can't have particular hairstyles in schools. And, and I think, yeah, that obviously carries on into the workplace. And I think, you know, all organisations, employers should be thinking about what their dress, their uniform policies look like and in all sorts of ways, but including in terms of in just to make sure that there isn't anything sort of discriminatory in there around appearance, particularly around this kind of issue. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Uh, but my next story actually is also about uh, a dress code, um, but it was just interesting. I think it jumped out at us all because it's one that I've not really heard of before, not not really, um, uh, yeah, not not something I've sort of been that's been on my radar as, as something that, that there would need to be policies about. Um, and I think it's about your old university, Emma, that we uh, Cardiff. It is, um, yeah. Um, where they have a club night on Wednesdays called YOLO. Don't know if that was going on when you were there or not. Well, there was a club night. It wasn't called YOLO when I was there, but um, yeah. Um, yeah, club but, nights. <laughs> that's what it's now called and they the student union the students union who put on this club night have banned blue shirts and chinos from being worn by men in the club following a, a couple of issues which happened in the queue for their nightclub um in october and it's interesting because i as i say i just wouldn't have blue shirts and chinos doesn't mean anything particular to me but what they say is that those outfits are typically associated with sports clubs at the university and they're basically saying we're not going to let you in if you're sort of identifying with a with a sort of with a group in that way and I just thought it was interesting because it feels like quite an onerous thing feels like quite you know what there might be lots of people who would wear blue shirts and chinos uh, yeah and it's, it's interesting because a lot of the um dress code issues we see are often around length of skirts you know in, in in the city what we often see is sort of dress codes for women where you're not allowed to wear particularly short skirts so you're not allowed so so it just it felt quite interesting and quite unusual to me so yeah just thought it was worth having a little chat about yeah, definitely. Um, it is unusual for blue shirts and chinos to be associated with um, dangerous behaviour, mm. which is what this article was referring to and what, what the Students' Union was referring to. Um, again, it comes down to stereotyping, doesn't it? Yeah. If you're wearing blue shirts and chinos, you're associated with a, a particular type of person. And so it reminded me of the old Fred Perry t-shirts, yeah. which were associated with punks and then punks are associated with 
this is not me speaking, but the, the, the stereotyping was mm. that it could give rise to, if you're wearing that, um, it could give rise, or if your hair is in a particular way, um, or if you're wearing a particular type of shoes, that it's going to give rise to antisocial behavior. Mm. So again, it's a, it's a really unusual, and I think that's why um, it was reported in the press, because associating this type of dress with antisocial behavior, with, it seems a little bit odd, but, and, and in all of these cases, it's always going to be just one or two, a uh, really small percentage of the group of people who might be dressed in that way that have caused the issue and uh, ruined it for everybody else. But it's a little salutary message um, against stereotyping somebody just because of the way they look. And um, one would hope that, you know, if somebody turned up with a, a Mohican um, or a skinhead and a Fred Perry t-shirt, that people won't look at them and immediately associate um, a particular type of behavior. Anymore. Yeah, there are, there's a sort of separate issue, but around um, certain brands becoming associated with them. Yeah. Um, with particular categories of people. So there, there are some brands that were really associated with football yeah. hooliganism in the 80s. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, a number of brands, I'm not going to name them because I'm sure you all know which which brands I'm talking about, but um, have done a lot of work to try and break that, that association because you obviously don't want, you know, people seeing you wearing a particular jacket or a particular shirt and thinking, oh, they must be a football hooligan if, if, if you're, a, you know, actually quite a high-end brand so it's, it's really interesting to see how those associations develop in people's heads and then what what that can do in terms of people making assumptions about people just based on their clothes which obviously happens all the time and it goes back to that same kind of issue we're talking about with dreadlocks or with you know women wearing muslim veils and i think it's uh you know there are there are all sorts of associations that people make assumptions just based on appearance and i think it's really yeah and, and appearance and dress and that's really problematic mm, absolutely so um I, i'm wondering if the ban is just temporary and has been lifted now um quite unusual in my day for students to have dressed up to that level at going to a club night it was normally shorts and um sombreros <laughs> the way that you could spot somebody from the rugby club anyway it's potentially problematic in itself Emma so you know there's a... exactly there's a huge space issue um but quite good for covid <laughs> the social distancing type of way <laughs> excellent so thank you so much Emma it's been a really interesting chat thank you everybody for listening um, if you have any topics you'd like us to cover or news stories you think are interesting or any comments about what we've talked about today, we'd love to hear them. I'm always interested in discussing these issues and uh, we look forward to our next episode in a month or so. Thanks, Beth. For more information about what we do, do go to our website, cm-murray.com. Fantastic. Thank you.